Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Welcome to the Inside China Basin San Francisco Giants baseball podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, featuring players like all-star catcher Buster Posey. It's about, you know, just going out and, and trying to have passion for the game that I've loved since I was a kid. Inside China Basin is brought to you by Sun First Solar, known for delivering solar excellence since 1984 and recently voted best solar company in Marin County. We're also brought to you by TPC Harding Park, the only public golf course in San Francisco offering golfers the opportunity to play where the pros play. Coming up, we'll hear from former KMBR talk show host Ray Woodson and Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt. But first, I want to tell you about my favorite golf course, TPC Harding Park in San Francisco. TPC Harding Park is now open and accepting tee times at tpc.com slash Harding Park. And TPC Harding Park is also pleased to announce the 2020 PGA Championship has been rescheduled for August the 3rd through the 9th. For additional information, visit tpc.com slash Harding Park or feel free to contact 102PGA at pgahq.com. Now let's get to the conversation with Ray Woodson. Well, Ray, we are living in uh, some really strange times. First, we had the pandemic, uh, now protests and violence around the country. And in the middle of this, we have a discussion about getting a baseball season underway. And we will talk about baseball here in just a moment uh, and, and what the plans are. But, you know, first, your thoughts on just what's happening around the country and, uh, you know, the hopes that we could get out of this safely and, and together as a country. It's going to be a, a long, hard job to accomplish that the way things are going, unfortunately. It's, it's very sad. Um, I'm just going to start out by saying Black Lives Matter. That should not be a controversial statement. And what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis was horrifying and criminal. And it's not an isolated incident. And that's why so many people around the country are in the streets expressing their First Amendment rights. And they're doing it around the world now. The world sees what's happening here. Uh, this is a tipping point in our history, I believe. I've been around a long time, so I think I have a little bit of perspective about that. Uh, and I appreciated the comments of Mike Kruko on KMBR the other day. He, had, he mentioned he had a lot of family who were in law enforcement. Uh, my ex-wife was in law enforcement. Uh, I've had a uh, family that has been working for the U.S. government, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate what he said, because what happened with George Floyd is just plain wrong, and you have to stand up as an American and say something about it. And you can't tone down the rhetoric, as, as Mike said. Uh, this, you have to show your children and your grandchildren what you stand for and what this country is supposed to stand for, and it's not what happened in Minneapolis last Monday. Now, you know, the looting and all that, of course, that's out of bounds. Nobody wants that. And especially with the small businesses that get hit. And a lot of those businesses are minority-owned. That's not right, and that's not 
supposed to be about. We all know that. And we also know there are a lot of instigators out there who are trying to play this for political advantage. But the heart of the protest is right. There need to be changes in this country. Um, and I would like to hear more athletes uh, get on the platform. There are some. Back in the 60s, there were a lot of athletes who, who you know, broke the barrier and, and spoke out, as we know. We need to see more of that now. Steph Curry of the Warriors made a statement on Instagram, was pretty strong last week. Uh, I'd like to see more athletes use their platform, because if you don't use it now, when the hell are you going to use it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Is, the, the, the Colin Kaepernick was right, and I defended him on the air. I didn't like the pig socks, but that was at a practice. But so what? I'm gonna I'm gonna invoke Alan Iverson here. We're talking about socks. We're talking <laughs> about socks here, all right? But, but but you know, after he knelt, what's been happening since then? More of what he was protesting against, and the, and he was, as I said on the air at the time, he was using his constitutional rights to make a statement peacefully. And by the way, he compromised after talking talking to Nate Boyer of the Seahawks, former Army Ranger, saying, hey, why don't you kneel just to show that you're, you're, you're not, it's not about the flag or the military. And, of course, it wasn't. And he did that, and he compromised. And it's been more of the same since that protest. And he hasn't been playing in the NFL. And the NFL released a statement last, last week, and it just fell flat because they blackballed this guy out of the league, and he had to settle with them. Um, and he should get a job in the NFL again, but that's another another topic. But he was right, and he was expressing that there's a percentage of this population, a portion of this population, that some some who have been brought up in other circumstances can't understand the pain they're feeling, and he was expressing that. And these aren't just your fellow Americans that are hurting right now. And you, you can see in all these protests and George Floyd's family, the pain is real. It is visceral. And, and I, um, I also appreciate as Ronell Brooks Moon, the Giants' PA announcer, has been making, and I'm I'm right in step with her on that. There are people in pain. They're your fellow citizens, and they're your brothers and sisters. We're all God's children. So, this is this is a moment where yes, you'd better stand up. You know, this is this is what being in a democracy is supposed to be about. And if you don't do it, you're going to lose that democracy. And it's not guaranteed to anybody. You've got to fight for it. My dad fought for that in, in World War II in the South Pacific as, as a Marine sergeant. I'm direct descendant of people who fought on the it was a Union Army general in the Civil War, a Revolutionary War captain, and people that formed the United States uh, Constitution blueprint, the Hartford Colony Constitution in the 1630s. I'm a direct descendant of those people. This is a family heirloom to me. But whether... You have 13 generations on this soil, whether you're a Native American who's had your soil stolen from you, uh, or whether you are somebody who just came into this country, um, we all have a stake in this, and we should all be speaking out right now uh, for our, our fellow citizens who are hurting. Yeah, and, I totally uh, agree. Yeah, yeah I, you know, this, this, is, this is not left and right. This is not Republican and Democrat. This is right and wrong. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm glad you brought up Kaepernick because I think it took a, a lot of bravery to risk his career uh, for the cause that he had. And I think that's what we're looking for right now is some brave 
people. You think about baseball and you go all the way back to Jackie Robinson and how brave he was when he broke the color line. And it really, it's not that long ago when you think about it in, in the big picture that, you know, that's uh, what, 73 years ago that he broke the color barrier. And before that, yeah. I mean, black players were not allowed in baseball. So, you know, baseball was sort of leading the way and maybe that can happen again. I mean, you, you need to bring people together here. There needs to be bravery and, uh, you know, Everybody has to think about the greater cause in a situation like this. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, so when you have uh, the, the nation being divided like this, it's a time to come together. And I always think baseball is a good sport for that, for people to come together, think about that. And, um, you know, hopefully there will be uh, some unity that happens here in the near future. It's, it's hard to imagine that this continues on because it's just so sad. Yeah, I, I don't know if we're ever going to have real unity, but we have to agree on certain precepts in order to move forward, uh, certain certain moral principles if we're going to move forward. Uh, it, we at least have to have the majority of the country agree with that, and I think the majority of the country does, uh, and I think the polling indicates that. Um, I remember talking, I did an interview a long time ago with a, a guy who was a Negro League umpire, and his name was Tootie McDaniels. And he talked about all the hoops they had to jump through just to get on the field every day. And the bus rides they had to take, playing doubleheaders in the hot summer sun in the south or wherever they were, Kansas City, Chicago, you name it. And, you know, just a hard scrabble life. But even then he expressed how fortunate they felt to be able to make whatever they were making to play a kid's game. And they carved out a successful business model for themselves, but it shouldn't have to be that way. And it took a long time for baseball to get there. It took a long time. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner and the, the owners back then, weren't going to have it. Uh, it took leadership to move it forward, and it's going to take leadership to move things forward now. But I remember Tootie McDaniel saying there were times where you were just so tired. You, know, you knew what the country about, was about. You knew the roadblocks they were putting up for you. You, you understood that was the way it was, but it was just tiring. And there are a lot of people in this right now who are dealing with some of the same things. Yes, things are better in some respects, but in other respects they haven't changed. And people are tired. Uh, black Americans are tired. And, uh, you know, th- it doesn't matter, for example, if you're, you're a ball player making millions of dollars if you still get stopped for no reason, you know. It doesn't matter that if you fought for your, for your country and you come home and you still get stopped. And in some, there have been cases where they've been injured or killed. For what? You know, so these are, these are great moral issues that, that we have to address as a country. And uh, you know, it, it, it's part of the original sin of slavery. Uh, you want to know when this really began? It began in 1619 when the first slaves were brought over to, to North America. So uh, it's going to take some, some pretty frank talk, and, it, and, it, and white people have to be part of this, not just part of this. They have to do some of the work now, you know, maybe most of the work to, to you know, bridge gaps, to build bridges and, and, and move this forward. Uh, it, it's, it, it's not incumbent on black Americans to communicate now they've been trying to communicate they've been crying out for a long time it's us to listen now we'll have more with ray woodson right after this 
Jones goes back, back near the wall, shading the sun, and he dropped it. He lost the ball in the sun. Let's put the sun to good use at home with a Sun Power residential solar system. Your Sun Power elite dealer, Sun First Solar, has a wide range of financing options, and they provide the finest customer service from start to finish, regardless of size or scope. Sun First Solar offers the highest efficiency systems, newest technology, and the best warranty in the world. Sun First Solar offers the most competitive price, while not compromising on quality. This summer, let the sun heat your pool and eliminate your energy bill. Don't drop the ball. Call Sun First Solar at 415-458-5870. That's 415-458-5870. And get your sun power solar system today. As far as baseball is concerned with everything that's going on, whether it be pandemic or the protests, nobody wants to hear about billionaire owners and millionaire ballplayers arguing over a proposal. And that's exactly what we have, Ray, which is really sad. It, it just definitely makes me angry to think about that they can't figure this out. You know, here we go again, yeah. because there have been so many times over the years where uh, they can't come to an agreement. They can't figure out uh, how to get a good collective bargaining agreement. And they were kind of headed in that direction anyway, because after 2021, they were going to have to have a new collective bargaining agreement anyway. But here we sit with you know players saying they want 114 games and owners saying we want fewer games than that, maybe 82 or maybe 50. Just get it done. You know, the, the problem with baseball is maybe the same thing with a country where you need a leader that's going to – have the the better interests of everybody at heart uh and not you know looking at just the owners with rob manfred i mean he's he's on the owner side and we don't have a commissioner who's down the middle uh so i think that's the problem and i don't know that we're going to get an agreement and you know i almost think that it's almost too dangerous for the players to even take the field anyway ray i I just the way this proposal is they're they're still going to be traveling uh you know there could be spread of the coronavirus and then you're gonna have to stop the season in the middle so i don't know if you just wipe it away but uh but you you do want to see them just come to an agreement here because it is it's kind of sickening to see that they would be arguing over money at this point in time well i understand some of the past uh, union leaders at all the current union leadership look you've got some good points uh you may be right but right now nobody wants to hear it you know yeah. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the pandemic and social unrest this stuff seems pretty damn trivial now and i understand there are ball players and there are people affiliated with this club that their livelihood it's a multi-billion dollar business but but it's business about entertainment. So uh, we need entertainment for sure. I miss baseball so much, as, as I know a lot of fans out there do. But we understand it, in a way, it's essential. It would give us a you know a drink of water in the desert, crying out loud. But uh, when it comes down to it, it's, it's not life or death. It's a thing that emotionally would definitely be an oasis for this, this country right now. But... There there are a lot of obstacles to this, a lot of working parts, as I've said before. You can get players on a field and start a game, but there are a whole lot of other things involved as well, as far as the travel, as far as how do you handle the clubhouse, as far as the medical staff, as far as the staffers with the team. Uh, Sounds like minor league baseball is going to be pretty much out this year. As far as the Giants are concerned, it sounded like they were keeping staff on for a little while longer, but... We just don't know down the road whether they're going to be able to sustain that. And 
as I understand it, 24 teams are sending minor leaguers at least into July, some longer than that, and some are providing health care. Uh, you know, the A's saved a million dollars by cutting loose the minor leaguers, and they just bought themselves millions of dollars of bad publicity. And oh, by the way, the draft is five rounds this year. You you think free agent players are going to want to go to the A's? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, after what they did? No. They said, well, you're not you're not going to look out for my fellow players. Why should I go to you? There's a lot of uncertainty. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the A's. I think the Giants also got some bad publicity when they released some minor leaguers. I think it was 20 minor leaguers. And yes. when you hear that they saved like $30,000, it really it, it makes you think that, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of picking at the wrong spot. You know, they're, they're trying to save a, a few dollars here and there. But with minor leaguers who don't make that much money, I, I don't know that that's really going to make a big difference on their bottom line. So that was a little disturbing yeah. to hear that from the Giants' perspective. Yeah. Couldn't they have been a little bit better as far as – the way they're treating their minor leaguers? Yeah, that's that's the old phrase, being penny-wise and pound-foolish. Um, you, know, you, you solved a, a little problem, but you created a bigger one for yourselves because people look at that and say, what the hell? You're, you're worth billions now. Uh, you, you couldn't save this small amount of money? You know, the, the whole proposal about playing in stadiums, I wonder about it. I, I kind of touched on it a little bit. Because you're you're traveling, uh, I think that they had the original proposal of just playing in Arizona. I don't know why they got away from that. I mean, I think the players don't want to be away from their families for that length yeah. of time. But if they're going to play a shorter season, if they're going to play only fifty games, I don't know why. Maybe they wouldn't. Why they wouldn't go back to, you know, reviving that idea of saying, okay, we're just going to play in Arizona. You just drive to the stadium because once you start getting on airplanes and buses, and it seems to me like that's where the coronavirus uh, will spread again. And I, I know there's a lot of people in this country who kind of think the coronavirus is over. Like, you know, they're just not paying attention to the, the rules anymore on that. But I think that you still have to be wary of the fact that it could spread among a team. And then that's it. That's it. I mean, you won't even be able to get to a playoff situation. Well, there's more than 107,000 people dead in this country from the virus now. And this issue isn't going to go away. I'm <laughs> Sorry, sorry for anybody who's in denial. And so uh, if you're talking about playing in Arizona or Texas or Florida at this time of the year, you better be talking about a dome stadium, which creates its own issues, right? And if you you have all these teams playing in one stadium or a couple of stadiums, you have teams pulling in and out, how does, how does that work? <laughs> you know, so, yeah, because it's so uh, hot. Yeah, you can't really play at the spring uh, training sites, right? No, no, you can't. It's, it's 109 today. <laughs> in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't even play at nine o'clock at night. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that that one uh, logistically doesn't sound like it's going to work out for me. I think that the owners are making a big mistake with the minor leagues. I mean, they're trying to contract. Uh, they are trying to, you know, eliminate teams where they don't want to really support the minor leagues. And I think that's a big mistake because Ray, I, you know, I think baseball is one of those sports that you want fans from all across the country to enjoy it and see it. And, and then they'll spend money on it, whether it be going to a major league game or watching it on TV. So if you're starting to eliminate minor league teams and eliminate the opportunity to go to games in cities that don't have major league baseball, you're causing a problem for yourself. You are, and it's almost a bigger loss for those minor league towns than it is major league towns. I mean, a lot of these major league cities, in normal times, there are other things to do. Uh, in, I've been, I've lived in minor league towns, and I know you have too. 
uh, when those games are gone, it leaves a big hole in those communities. Uh, it, it, it does a lot of sort of a domino effect, a lot of, a lot of harm to, to local businesses there and to the morale of those communities. And so I know that owners and Major League Baseball had been trying to contract the minor leagues anyway. They've been trying to cut down anyway. Uh, but, but this exacerbates that. And it, I think it does a lot of collateral damage that people aren't thinking about right now. Who gets the blame here if they don't get an agreement? I, I mean, I'm thinking the owners, but the owners also have leverage where, you know, if the players yep. miss a season, that hurts them. You know, their, their uh, service time and even just their skill level <laughs> missing an entire season, I, it hurts them a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, the owners just really, to me, look the worst uh, when it comes down to this. But you're also going to have a situation, Ray, I think, where some free agents might say, hey, I don't, I don't want to play in a shortened season like that. It might not make my stats look good, and then they look bad. So, I mean, I think both yeah. sides are going to suffer. Yeah, the short season, I mean, you start having statistical anomalies. So even a great hitter might end up hitting 209, right, in a 50-game right. season. They get in the slump, and it's going to Also, there's players who might be approaching free agency who worry about getting hurt in a short season, and the damage that will do. That, that factors into this as well. Like I say, the players have a lot of legitimate concerns about this. But, again, how does this play out with the public? And we know that a lot of the public tends to side with ownership. They say, oh, look at these spoiled millionaire players. You know, they, they, they don't think about the billionaire owners. They think about the millionaire players. But there are also a lot of players that don't make millions, right? And that, that's kind of the problem with the minor league situation. They're, they're, they're making a small stipend to begin with. Some of them get bonuses, but you know, those bonuses aren't always enough to live on. And you know, the, the, the way it's looking at the major league level now, it sounds like the big money players are going to be all right. What, what about the, the lower level and rookie level players? Are they going to get caught holding the bag here and take all the risks? So you can see why for a lot of players, they're, they're making career and life decisions right now. And I understand their, their hesitancy to, to dive into a deal. Badly as I'm sure they want to play baseball and as badly as we want to see them play. But I just think that I think as far as the public is concerned, it's probably not going to work out to the player's advantage. Keep on bickering. Yeah, and I mean, it's the other thing that's really tough about it is having games with no fans in the stands. It's just, yeah. you know, I know we'll get entertained on television, but it's just not, you know, it's not the way that you want to see it. I mean, I understand the way things are going right now. There's not much you could do about that, but it almost makes me think that uh, it's kind of being forced. You know, you're forcing it, and, mm-hmm. and maybe you just, you know, cancel the season and move on to next year. I hate to say that, but, I mean, it just seems like, you know, you're taking a, a risk that maybe you shouldn't be taking. Well, my gut tells me we won't see until 2021. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I know there's an effort, a serious effort being made here, but, uh, I, again, I think there are just, just a lot of hurdles to overcome here. But if it does happen, I'd say to the owners, if you want this, this to happen again, it's going to have to probably be with no fans in the stands or very few fans. So it won't be the same, but a lot of people are still sheltering at home. People acting like, oh, the virus is done with just because some businesses are opening up. But in a lot of states, and a lot of localities, people are still have to stay where they are. People in high-risk groups still have to stay where they are. So uh, they'd love to see some baseball on TV. So that would be great. And an expanded postseason would be great. But, again, for the people involved, you could say, oh, you're just playing a game. Go out there and play. And, you know, entertain us. 
But they, these players have families and health concerns too. And yes, they're they're younger and they might be in a lower risk group, but there's still a risk. So uh, I, I just again think that there's just too much involved here. I'd I'd be really surprised if they're able to pull this off and, and get a baseball season, and maybe they shouldn't. The no fans in the stands thing makes me think of uh, doing a game in Toledo one time, and really there were almost no fans in the stands. It was very quiet, and the umpire could hear everything I was saying on the radio. So if I was saying he made a bad call, he kind of just jerked his head back and looked at me and gave me a, a stare. You know, he glared at me because <laughs> I was saying, wait a minute, that, you know, that was outside or whatever. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I could see that happening, you know, in a major league game. If, if, if the broadcast position is close enough to home plate, these guys are going to hear exactly what the announcers are saying. 1-1 one, one pitch outside. He called it a strike. <laughs> What are you talking about? Yeah, try do that with Cowboy Joe West. He'll, he'll walk up in the stands and you'll have a live argument on the air. <laughs> that could be entertaining. At least we could have that. All right, thanks a lot for the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll have baseball back at some point in some uh, shape or form. And hopefully this country will get it together and uh, people will uh, you know come together for, like you said, the cause Black Lives Matter, which uh, definitely is something that uh, everybody should keep in mind every day uh, from here on forward. Your lips to God's ears. That's Ray Woodson. Coming up, we'll hear from Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt right after this. We all know that solar systems make financial sense and environmental sense. And when it comes to choosing the best installation crew in the business, Sun First Solar should be your first choice. Sun First Solar has provided solar excellence since 1984. They are Sun Power Elite Commercial and Elite Residential Installers with a reputation for technical excellence, innovative design, fair pricing, excellent customer service, and end-to-end quality and competence. Sun First Solar is a family business devoted to treating their employees, customers, the community, and the environment with respect, and they are devoted to renewable energy and sustainability throughout the Bay Area. There is no roof or project that is too complicated. Sun First has successfully installed solar on Spanish tile roofs, metal roofs, and very steep roofs. They also have extensive experience in solar ground mounts and solar pool heating. Competitive pricing, expert consultation, and the best warranty. Go local and get your Sun Power solar system from Sun First Solar today. Call Sun First Solar at 415 458 5870. That's 415-458-5870. Earlier in the spring, I had a chance to chat with Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt. Here was that conversation. Mike Schmidt joining us, the great Hall of Famer, three-time MVP, 10-time Gold Glover, 12-time All-Star, 548 career home runs. Mike, uh, I had the great pleasure of working with you for a whole week out in Arizona at the World Baseball Classic. When it first started in 2006, it's a, it's a week I'll never forget. Uh, hopefully it's in your memory somewhere because uh, we had a lot of fun together, didn't we? Yeah, we did, Joe. Um, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I believe uh, the next year, the next three years, I think it was that, that was uh, happening every three years, I believe, uh, on Davey Johnson's uh, uh, man, it was manager, and uh, I, I appeared on his coaching staff. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I got I got to uh, suit up and be involved in the World Baseball Classic um, the, the three years after you and I did our work there. And I remember that first night uh, when we when we did a game. If I'm not mistaken, now you you can help me with this, but uh, <laughs> the United States played that they 
didn't we play one of those real young, uh, um, I want to say inexperienced teams? Yeah, South um, Africa. I remember yeah. talking to those kids. Yeah. Right, right, right. And the, like the oldest player on the team was like 16 or something like that. <laughs> right. I think they, I, as I remember, I think they gave him a pretty good game. They did, but they had to face Roger Clemens. I mean, okay, that, that's okay. one thing I do remember that Roger Clemens was on the mound. I mean, that team was loaded. Can you imagine those kids facing him? That that was right, pretty tough. Right, right. And I think wasn't wasn't that at the uh, Giants Spring Training Park? It was. Yeah, we were yeah. in Scottsdale for that one. Yeah. Right, we, right. So uh, you know, I got memories of those. <laughs> well, you know, it makes me think too. Like when you were first coming up, uh, there had to be a pitcher that you know maybe not the same thing as Roger Clemens against these kids, but just a pitcher that you, maybe you had heard so much about that when you first stepped in the box it could be a little intimidating for a young uh, yeah. rookie there were several um i guess uh i guess tom siever would be the best example <clears throat> even though we're not that much different in age you know of course uh tom pitched in if I'm not mistaken in the late 60s and i really didn't get uh and that's kind of his prime uh in the late 60s to mid 70s uh and you know i struggled like crazy as everybody did uh against siever back then so yeah i remember uh jumping in that batter's box against tom and hardly having any success at all uh, you know the first 20 or 30 times i faced tom and it and then as he got older and uh kind of changed his style of pitching i got a couple off of him but uh no and then and gibson would be the same i remember uh facing bob gibson um, his last year, uh, I'm thinking maybe that might have been around 73, and he was kind of on his way out. And I think I got maybe 12 at bats against Gibson, and you know each of the the at bats to look out at the mound and see uh, Bob Gibson out there. Uh, you know, it gives you a little more butterflies than most of the guys you face. So Gibson and Seaver would be two great examples. Yeah, a lot of people talk about how Gibson wasn't afraid to move you off the plate. I mean, that was his reputation. And, you know, one of the things I noticed, Mike, I was watching some of the old highlights of you, and I forgot that you stood pretty far away from the plate. Uh, And I don't know if that was always the case in your career. Why did you adapt that type of stance? I did. I did. Uh, And I can remember um, specifically when I started that, it was, I want to say late 70s, I made an adjustment from kind of a neutral stance at home plate, and I backed up about six inches. Uh, Just one of the many experiments that I tried throughout my career, and it worked. Uh, It kind of opened up the inside corner for me. Uh, What I mean by that is uh, when you stand off of the plate, uh, any, any ball coming, any fastball coming, you know, near your body, or even a slider, so to speak, uh, you have more room, uh, you know, you don't feel like you have to pull your left shoulder out, and it kind of makes you naturally makes you hit the ball up the middle into right field. And you know, back in, and I was watching. Uh, let's see, what was it? It was the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals uh, World Series. What was it? 1983. You know, how we're watching all those old oh, yeah. uh, old games on TV now. <laughs> yeah. And almost every player that came to home plate, every hitter had a closed stance. Um, if you remember George Hendrick, and the only guy that did not have a closed stance that stood out back then was uh, was Cecil Cooper, and you know he had that uh, kind of laid his back bat real flat back and had that wide open stance. Now every other player, Robin Yount, uh, uh, Gorman Thomas, Paul Molitor, a little bit, they all had a closed stance with that left foot uh, close or you know close to the plate and the right foot kind of hanging back. And we all wanted that. That was kind of the 
the essence of keeping your shoulder in, don't pull off the ball, have your weight going toward home plate, totally different style of hitting than, than what we see on a regular basis now. You know, now we see pretty much, uh, worse, you know, open for the hitters nowadays is kind of straight on, but almost all hitters nowadays have an open stance. And they may stride a little bit toward home plate, but they all seem to start off with a bit of an open stance. And so, you know, back then, you know, my stance of standing kind of far off the plate and kind of striding toward the pitcher or, or maybe even toward home plate was, you know, pretty normal. Maybe I stood a little further off than most people, but, uh, you know, my stance uh, was pretty normal. Actually, I had that stance through my greatest years, through my four greatest years. Yeah, I mean, I noticed it. I noticed exactly what you were talking about, about those players from that era also not having the open stance. And one thing you do notice about today is that all anybody talks about is launch angle. I mean, you, you see oh, it, you get the yeah. stats on it, all the analytics. And I was watching the video of you, Mike, thinking, you know, that's launch angle. You hit some high, long home runs, but nobody talked about it being launch angle. <laughs> well, no, we didn't have that, uh, you know, we didn't have that in our – in our hitting mechanical vocabulary yet. Um, you know, I, I don't like it uh, when I'm on, when I'm doing the color for the Phillies uh, on the weekends. Uh, I, I, will, I will be honest with the fans and say I don't like it, but I, but I kind of understand why, you know, why they teach it. I guess the first, the first thing would be um, small ballparks. Yeah. Um, rather have the ball in the air than on the ground because balls on the ground um, nowadays with the shifting defenses are generally, if they're pulled ground balls, are being pulled right into the shifting defense. And they also have uh, analytics that prove that, you know, if three or four hitters come up in the row with the, with the right launch angle and they, and they, the, the, possibility of the home run or the two-run home run or you know the double off the wall with men on base and if no one hits a ground ball there's a greater chance of scoring runs in that inning than if you know then if uh, when we played with uh, standard defenses we used to like to drive the ball on the ground or hit the ball on the line and the more more line drive hitters you had the more players on the team had high batting averages and we felt you know, that the more high batting averages you have, the more runs your team's going to score. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. And and nowadays it's low batting averages and high long home runs. Don't hit into many double plays and don't pull the ball into the shifts. So they're using their, uh, they're using their facts that they have based upon, uh, you know, all of the things that are uh, loaded into computers and studied and, uh, uh, you know, uh, what what am I thinking about? What do they call the uh, the uh, company that uh, that measures every ballpark that has cameras all over the ballparks and uh, uh, is able to log every swing and every pitch and every angle and every you know what I mean that uh, yeah. that the announcers talk about nowadays? We didn't have that back then. You know, all we had was a guy sitting in the dugout with a chart, and they had spray charts for hitters. You know, back then, but they they didn't have uh, what I want to call computer printout spray, chart, spray charts that they have now. So, I mean, they 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 got it down to a science. It's amazing. Um, last last point on that is I I was working in um, uh, one Sunday working a game and I looked down into the Phillies dugout and I saw, you know, I saw like a uh, <clears throat> a counter, you know, by by the by where the manager stands and there were like five coaches 
sitting at that counter, and every one of them had a had an iPad in front of them. <laughs> and <laughs> so, I tell you what, it, it's down to a science. And if you want to know which guy should pinch hit against a particular pitcher, it's not, you know, it's not gut feeling or it's not the eye test or anything like that. It's it. Tell me who's our best hitter against this pitcher. <laughs> and you know, and the coach will say, "Well, so and so hits uh, 280, and so and so has got a 400 batting average." And they send him up there, and it may, you know, it may look crazy. How can you spend this guy this early in the game? You know, and it, it, you know, some of the decisions they make look crazy to us announcers, but they're supported by facts that uh, that they have that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just so different. Uh, you know, when every hitter is trying to hit it out of the ballpark, or they have the launch angle. That's so different than your swing, Mike, right? I mean, you guys were, especially well, again, a power I, I, hitter, right? Joe, I go back to um, the World Series that, that I was talking about. I mean, I marveled at all of the, you know, all of the, what, I, what I consider level swings, uh, a bit of a downswing, uh, um, the ability to hit a high fastball. You know, guys back then could hit high fastballs. And, um, you know, the line drive swings, you, you, you hardly saw any big uppercutting swings. And, you know, of course, I, I will say that Ted Williams thought that the swing should have a slightly upward plane, and I'm not going to argue with what Ted Williams thought, but uh, I think there were more players that um, that had level to downward plane swings uh, when I played. Obviously, there's way more when we played than there are now. And, I, you know, I still believe that's the way they should be swinging the bat now because I hate to watch – you know, I hate to watch uh, what a twenty, you know, combined thirty strikeouts a game. Yeah. You know, when when I'm watching two two teams play today. You know, you mentioned the analytics and uh, the modern day manager, uh, Gabe Kapler, who was the manager in Philadelphia. Right. I know you're familiar with him. He's now here in San Francisco. What do you think we can expect from him as a manager? <clears throat> Gabe's a wonderful man, a uh, great communicator. Um, he does lean quite heavily on. Uh, the analytical part of uh, of the game today. Uh, very very smart guy. Very smart guy. Um, and the only thing about Gabe that you know that he he, he loves his players and he gives them a lot of a uh, lot of leeway. You know, there's not a lot of uh, dress code stuff. There's not a lot of uh, um, the the clubhouse is there. You'll see a lot of TVs and a lot of uh, uh, you know what you might see that we weren't allowed to do back when I played when we traveled we had to have a sport coat on when we arrived at the hotel that sport coat had to be on you know everybody looked really nice when we traveled well now you know Gabe's teams uh, will be able to wear what they want on airplanes and they'll, you know there'll be jeans and Gabe's the Gabe's philosophy is that uh, if the players are happy they'll play better mm -hmm. and uh, on the discipline side um, I think that was one of the things that hurt him in Philadelphia. I think the uh, uh, the ownership and the general manager and and you know the people that matter uh, in Philadelphia thought that there was just a little bit too much freedom for the players in Philadelphia. Yeah, maybe he changes that around a little bit. You think? Well, it depends on uh, if he you know if he learned that or, or, or when he was in Philadelphia and, and whether he changed his philosophy on that. I do not know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Now, you there are some connections of uh, you know you and San Francisco. In fact, you made your decision to retire in 1989 in San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and maybe some candlestick yeah. memories that you have? Sure, a vivid memory of that. Uh, the um, 
let's see. It was Sunday afternoon. Uh, uh, we weren't playing well as a team. We're on a West Coast trip. Uh, I was in like a one for twenty uh, slump as a hitter. Uh, I was. Uh, you know, I mean, when you get in close to 40, you know, you start daydreaming a little bit every now and then about uh, how you're going to handle when it, when you, you know, start to get to the end of your career. And unfortunately, when you start thinking like that, you are at the end of your career. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, Joe, I was lucky. I've made a lot of money. What was a lot of money back then, it isn't comparatively <laughs> speaking to today, but I had made enough money. I... I uh, you know, my kids, the next couple generations of the Schmitz were, were going to be fine based upon, uh, or at least I thought anyway back then. And, uh, you know, I had accomplished a lot of things individually as well as a team in Philadelphia. And um, what happened was uh, kind of like I said, you know, I used to, pr- you know, I still do. I mean, my, my spiritual life is very important to me, and I, I prayed that I'd get some, get a sign or so uh, to help me with my decision. And so um, I'm playing third base one day, and there was a man on first base, and Robbie Thompson. You probably remember Robbie oh, yeah. Thompson. <laughs> yeah. uh, he had a hard ground ball to me. It was a nice little double play ball, and went right through my legs into left field, and. So I said, man, my reactions just aren't what they used to be. And boom, Will Clark hit the next pitch for a grand slam. And when Will Clark trotted around the bases and went in front of me and touched third base, I said, I've just played my last game. (laughs) Wow. It was clear. It was clear to you. So Yeah, and uh, when I went to home plate, the next time I went to home plate, and this was kind of seventh inning, eighth inning or something like that, I I was the only one that knew it, but that was my last at-bat. You know, I knew – that was my last at bat, and as it turns out, um, I chopped a ball toward I think it was Uribe, Jose Uribe, at uh, shortstop. Yeah, that would be him. Man. Yeah, he bobbled it a little bit, and I beat it out at first base. <laughs> so I'm standing over at first base, and they gave me a hit. <laughs> right, so I'm over there, and I said, hey, Tony Taylor was the coach, and I said, uh, uh, Tony. That was my last at-bat. For some reason, I wanted to share it with Tony. And, you know, Michael, Michael, what are you talking about? You know, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't think I was serious at all. So, yeah, that was my last at-bat. I don't know why I told him that, but I did. And I go around the bases, and uh, as it turns out, I got another at-bat. The game got tied, and I got another at-bat. And um, Terry Mulholland was a pitcher in relief, and he walked me. So my last at-bat was that single. So I go after the game, I rush into the clubhouse, and I just tore my uniform off, ran over, got in the shower, way first into the shower. Most guys weren't even undressed yet. So I get in the shower, and Larry Shank sticks his head around the corner. He's our PR director. And he said, Mike, I just want to let you know they changed that last at-bat to an error. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that's <laughs> not right. About, I spent about an hour thinking that I got a hit in my last at bat. <laughs> I changed it to an error. Well, it's supposed to be the fairy tale ending, but it wasn't. But yeah, know. and but. so you know, then I had um, played my last game. I went to the airport, and uh, the, uh, was it Nick Leva was the manager, and he got off the plane, and uh, I said, Nick, I just want to let you know uh, I'm going to retire. Uh, that was my last game, and. 
you know, so that that turn, got the wheels turning and um, called back to Philly and told the owner and uh, the general manager and everybody. And then uh, when we went to San Diego from there to end the road trip, uh, we had a team party and I had a press conference. And so that was how it went down. Uh, I really wished it would have gone down more uh, with me having that all happen at, in, at home in Philadelphia. So at least I could have played my last game in front of the fans. But, you know, it was it was heartfelt. It was it was a decision I made with my heart. There were there was no politics involved. Uh, no, hey, play one more year and travel around the league and get you know have Mike Schmidt Day everywhere you go and get gifts and things like that. Uh, wasn't interested in that. Um, so I never put the uniform on again after that uh, as a player. The three zero pitch. Swag and long drive. There it is. Number five hundred. There are two moments that stand out that I wanted to ask you about real quick. One is 500th home run because you had more emotion for that home run that we than we normally saw. And the other is just winning the MVP in the 1980 World Series with that team and individual accomplishment. You know, World Series where you hit 381 with two homers and seven RBIs. Those two moments, I would imagine, stand out the most for you? Well, they definitely stand out. Of course, uh, winning a World Series is, uh, you know, the team the team accomplishments always seem to stand out a little bit more nice to have the individual accomplishment but the team uh things stand out 500th home run actually uh, the anniversary was a couple of days ago got a lot of uh, uh texts and emails and things uh, uh youtube videos and all that kind of stuff kind of felt good to see those uh um, yeah, a little, a little emotion on that. That uh, was a big home run. Uh, the, the I needed five starting the year off and uh, got them pretty quick. <clears throat> and the the, the uh, it was a three run home run that won the game for us. And we were I think we were had lost eight in a row or something like that. And uh, it was a big home run uh, for the team, which was which was a great thing. Uh, the emotion and. Obviously, the build-up to the 500th home run, and every time I went to home plate, everybody was wondering if this would be the one, and my wife was there, and I knew a lot of people were there that um, were close to us. So, yeah, it came, it, it came, you know, I could have choked like a dog, and it could have taken two months to hit five home runs. <laughs> who, who would know? But it, they came pretty fast. And, um, you know, the, the 1980 season, uh, yeah, that was a clean sweep, so to speak, Uh had a great year that year, um, won the MVP and the World Series MVP. But I tell you, there were a lot of things, a lot of helpful things in the middle of that from teammates. Uh, I had a lot of big at-bats where I failed, and a guy would come off the bench and drive a run in, and you wouldn't even remember that I failed. So a lot of good timing in that year um, for me to, to do accomplish what I accomplished. And they're, they're two great memories. You know, I remember uh, sitting there with you in Arizona, and Barry Bonds came on the air with us uh, on XM Satellite Radio when we were doing yeah. the World Baseball Classic. And uh, at the time, it was interesting because the book Game of Shadows had just come out, and uh, you know, you're talking to Bonds, and this book is out, and you know, he ends up breaking the record. So, what were your overall impressions of of Bonds? You know, the whole steroids era and uh, his candidacy for the Hall of Fame, which is really tied to Roger Clemens. Do you think they deserve to go in? 
Well, accomplishments on the field, absolutely. Um, and again, I don't, I don't want to speak out of uh, out of school here. Um, the the whole steroid thing, uh, you know, we all have our opinions uh, on that, uh, and the only opinions that matter are, you know, the sports writers that do the voting. Um, you know, obviously, we don't know. Uh, all we know is what we see. What you know, what we look at somebody and and, and how big they are, and um, wonder oftentimes if someone can get that big and stay that strong and heal that well, um, just by working out. Uh, I know we all wonder that. Uh, Barry Bonds is somebody that I play. I never played against Clemens, but I played against Barry Bonds. Uh, um, gosh, I don't know. You probably look at where our careers cross paths. Uh, I don't know for three or four years, maybe he was with the Pirates, of course. Um, you know, during my time of playing against him, and and you know, Barry was not a big not a big man when I played against him. He was a uh, young, uh, fast, uh, the son of uh, Bobby Bonds, and I played against Bobby Bonds as well. And um, obviously, great talent. Um, but I did not play against Barry when when he was a San Francisco Giant, and I, you know I didn't obviously play against him at least three fourths of his career, and I just know that he had a great deal of respect for me because we talked a lot when we did play against each other, and uh, we've done some things together. We both worked for Franklin, Franklin, uh, the Franklin Batting Glove Company. Uh, I. Um, I had a lot to do with Barry and his involvement with the company, and uh, we traveled together a few times for that and went to uh, sports uh, shows and things uh, for the Franklin Company. And um, any picture you'll see of Barry, he'll have the Franklin gloves on. And just just general friendship is what we had, and uh, I would hope that someday that all gets ironed out and he and Roger and all those people in the Hall of Fame can come together and uh, give him their just reward. I mean, for me, Mike, if they take out the sportsmanship part, it's a no-brainer, but I think it's hard for the writers when they think about, you know, steroids. And it's also hard because some players you don't know, and then you're putting them in. It's a very tricky proposition. It sure is. Uh, You know, there's just – if there's some way that the Hall of Fames could do it, like the LPGA Hall of Fame, where after you get 25 wins, you, you're automatically in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> 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 it's it's so subjective, you know. I mean, we're we're coming up uh, uh, this. Uh, I believe there's a golden era voting uh, in the Hall of Fame coming up this year, and, and you're going to look at like Dick Allen and Jim Cotton, and and you. You think of those two names, and you go, how are they not in the Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. You know, when both of them have better statistic statistics on the back of their baseball cards as many, many of the people in the Hall of Fame. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And is it fair? I mean, I just don't know. Um, you know, one guy played too long, another guy... Um, has this problem? Another guy wasn't very good with the media. Another guy uh, beat his wife. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't exactly know, fit just, the character, sportsmanship, integrity yeah, part. Well, yeah. exactly, and it means so much to somebody like that to be to have HOF behind his signature and places you get to go and things you get invited to and and, and additional uh, money you'll make throughout the year. You know making speeches and things like that. And, and, you know, it's, it's just 
too important for it to be so subjective. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a difficult type of question that you don't want to really think about. Uh, to finish up here, Mike, the uh, Astros cheating scandal. I'm sure that didn't sit well with you, but you know, in baseball, you're always trying to get that edge. So, yeah, uh, yeah what did you have on your mind when you heard you're about that? You're not cheating. You're not trying. <laughs> right, right. So, what did you think about it? What do you think going forward? Uh, what will happen here? Uh, you know, what should happen as far as you know, players and retribution and all that. Well, it's going to be it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that unfolds uh, if this year, next year, whenever baseball gets underway again. I, th- I think um, the virus uh, issue will be will have taken a, a great amount of heat off of that subject. Um, the players uh, have very, very uh, vivid memories uh, of that kind of thing. The in the old days, if you you could steal signs and relay signs in various ways, uh, guys would pick up movements of pitchers and fla- flaring their gloves or a different stride or uh, just little nuances. Uh, uh, they call them tells and cards uh, that the pitchers or catchers or coaches might have and pick up something from the other team. That's been going on ever since the beginning of baseball. Relaying that uh, has a danger. You know, if you get caught uh, relaying signs from a set man on second base to the catcher, uh, you know, it could, uh, the retaliation for that was a fastball in the ribs or a fastball at the head or, you know, right. you know, could lead to a lot of problems on the baseball field, but it's problems that, uh, the teams and players were willing, you know, willing to gamble for or gamble with. And that's always, always been in baseball. There's never been a, a, uh, what do you want to call it? Um, uh, um, you know, a, a computer involved. There's never been a relay of information electronically. Right, this is the first time, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess there has been, uh, I guess at Wrigley Field one time, if I'm not mistaken, was someone in the scoreboard picking up signs. Right. Um, in this case, I'm not spe- I don't re- understand specifically how it, done, how it was done. I just know that somebody behind the dugout was looking at the center field camera and banging on something when it was, you know, something <laughs> other than a fastball. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess that would give you a bit of an advantage. Uh, that you, <laughs> well, the I, I hitter sure look like great hitters, <laughs> right? And I, and I would think that it would be hard to be the one guy who steps forward and says, "You know what? We're not doing this." Right? I mean, that—that's the thing. I mean, yeah, everybody. Oh, you mean involved. on the team? Yeah, yeah. the guy saying, "I'm not going to play on a team that cheats." <laughs> right. I mean, wouldn't that be hard if if you were on that team, Mike? I mean, it would be pretty hard to to step away from it. Uh, and I would think that it does help you a lot to know what pitch is coming. Yeah, it does. It does, but there's always that element of uh, of not being sure. You know, I'm not not. You know, ball starts at your head, and they told you that uh, it was something other than a fastball. <laughs> oh, what happened? You know, and right. you get hit in the head. Uh, they told me it was a curveball, and it wasn't. And so, yeah, just uh, boys will be boys. You know, <laughs> baseball players. And there's a whole lot of stake, if you know what I mean, um, when you get into the World Series and something like that's going on. And I'm just glad I don't have anything to do with the repercussions. Oh, golly. <laughs> exactly. Mike, thanks a lot. It's been so great to hear your voice. I, I enjoyed working with you so much uh, way back when in 2006. And I uh, hope you have a good time uh, you know, playing golf. And when the golf courses open up again and uh, be healthy and, and safe and uh, 
uh, good luck to you, and uh, look forward to seeing you on those Phillies broadcasts again, too. Okay, Joe. Uh, thanks a lot. It was so nice to hear your voice again, and uh, we got some fond memories, and you stay safe as well. That's Hall of Famer Mike Schmidt. want to thank him for joining us, as well as Ray Woodson. Join us again next week for another edition of Inside China Basin on the Believe Podcast Network. For now, I'm Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.